Good day, everyone. This is the Ontolog Forum, and uh, it's the Ontolog Invited Speaker Session again. And today we have the pleasure of having Dr. Patrick Cassidy from MITRE uh, presenting his talk on defining vo vocabularies, ontological and linguistic, a tool for ontologizing Ontolog. Um, before we go into Pat's presentation, uh, let's take the, uh, take the time to go around and at least announce who we are, where we come from, and uh, so that we all know who else is online. Uh, we'll skip Pat first. Uh, we'll formally introduce him right before the talk. Okay, Pat. So uh, I'll go down the list, uh, with, uh, the attendee list. Uh, so I'll start there. My name is Peter Yim. I'm one of the leaders of, uh, of the Ontolog Forum, uh, along with uh, Leo Oberst and Kurt Conrad. Um, welcome, everyone. So, Patrick? Uh, this is Patrick DeRusso. I work for Snowfall Software, and I'm a co-editor of the Topic Maps Reference. <coughs> Welcome, Patrick. Uh, next person in line, uh, that would be Joe, Joe Chisano. Oh, hi, this is Joe Chisano. I'm an associate with Booz Allen and um, all, also a member of uh, several OASIS technical committees. Welcome, Joe. Itzak? Yes. Uh, Itzak Roth, uh, previously with Unicorn, now with IBM, uh, using... Uh, Technology for semantic integration, information integration, and ad hoc queries. Welcome, Isak, and congratulations on the new posting. And switch. Uh, Richard? Richard Atlas? You're probably on mute. Uh, Richard Atler? No? Uh, then we'll move on. Uh, Attila? Yeah, Attila Richard. This is Eastern University in North Cyprus. I, oops. Uh, I deal with multi-agency semantic systems and teach research and do small projects. I'm also a member of or as you BDXML, so I'll get interested in ontology. Thank you, and welcome. Uh, Jack Park. Uh, Jack Park at uh, SRI. Um, I'm working on uh, subject maps for Ontology Federation, and I pound on Patrick Russo from time to time. Mm -hmm. uh, Bob Robinson from Boeing. Welcome, and welcome for the first time. Uh, Bob Smith? I'm Bob Smith uh, with Tall Tree Labs. I like to invite everybody here to the Sunday, July 23rd, face-to-face. -face. Um, people like Jack and and Peter are going to be there physically, and hopefully it'll be very exciting as well. We're going to arrange for access to listen primarily, but perhaps we can also squeeze in some 
ontology-relevant questions at this uh, Thank you. Uh, Andrew? Yeah, I'm Andrew Krauss. I'm the CTO of Revolytics. We, we develop um, vocabulary management tools for working on semantic widgets, and um, we're very interested in, in interoperability and integration problems. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, Antoinette? I'm Antoinette Arsic, and I work with um, Pat um, at MITRE. Um, and he's got me totally terrified now about another meeting that I may be supposed to be at. <laughs> Welcome, Antoinette. Uh, Richard? <laughs> Richard Lee? From yes, uh, you hear me? This is Richard Lee with Booz Allen Hamilton. Uh, I've been working on ontology development and use for, for many years now, mostly in the context of natural language processing uh, information extraction systems. Great. Uh, Brent? Brand name and EPA. Welcome, Brent. Uh, Roy? Hi, this is Roy Roebuck. I'm with Kamati Enterprises in uh, Arlington, Arlington, Virginia, and I've been uh, in this involved in this unplugged environment, uh, primarily trying to find technologies and uh, advocates for uh, whole enterprise management. Thank you, Roy. Uh, I know we have a couple of other people who, who are online who have not announced themselves. Uh, could you uh, introduce yourself, Tiz? Yeah, uh, this is Richard Adler from Decision Path. I think I got the youth problem liked. Uh, we're in the Boston area. We develop uh, strategic decision support solutions uh, based on an object-oriented domain meta model, and we're interested in finding out you know, relationships between that meta model and the uh, ontologue. Fantastic. Uh, who else is online? Uh, Kathy Lesh from the Washington office or Virginia office of MITRE. Hi, Kathy. Welcome. And Fairly congratulations new to on your new posting. Yes, and I've been doing health ontologies for a bunch of years. Uh, anyone else whom we've missed so far? If not, then uh, I'll go on to introduce our invited speaker for the day. And uh, we have the pleasure of having Dr. Patrick Cassidy here. Uh, uh, Pat Cassidy actually needs no introduction to a community like Ontolog, uh, because for uh, uh, he has been doing ontologies since. Uh, the 1970s. Uh, Pat Cassidy got his PhD in chemistry from Harvard in 71 and started a professional career as a biochemist in the research lab at Merck. Uh, he became increasingly intrigued with the potentials of computer intelligence and took an early retirement in 93 to devote full-time to research in natural language understanding and knowledge representation. Uh, he has been involved in building ontologies oh, since 95, and uh, since late 2004, he has been working at MITRE as a senior AI engineer. And prior to that, he was an ontologist with Vertical Net, uh, which was one of the pioneers in applying ontological engineering to e-business solutions. 
Dr. Cassidy has been playing an active leadership role in the ontology community, uh, which includes his founding and chairing of the ONTAC Working Group, which is the Ontology and Taxonomy Coordinating Working Group of the uh, Federal Government's Semantic Interoperability Community of Practice uh, that Brand Neiman, who's also with us today, uh, co-chairs. And he has also made key contribution in organizing our recent Upper Ontology Summit that Ontolog and NIST and a bunch of other uh, organizations uh, co-organized. Uh, he considers his mission to help at least one upper ontology to become sufficiently widely adopted to attract vendors and academic groups to use it and demonstrate the net networking conceptual language uh, for knowledge-based programs. So without further ado, uh, Patrick, all yours. Thank you, Peter. Okay, and Peter, um, if my voice fades, don't hesitate to remind me right. as often as necessary. All right. Do prompt okay. us to advance slides and then name the number of slide, uh, the, the slide numbers so that we can okay. all be in sync. Now, on slide one up at the bottom, we are on slide one, and at the bottom you'll notice that although I work at MITRE Corporation, the work I'll be talking about here is, is not actually part of my responsibilities at MITRE. It's uh, spare time, personal time, effort. And uh, MITRE, as it says, is provided only for identification. If you hear something you don't like, don't blame MITRE. Slide two. The uh, generic talk I'll be giving today is like uh, three parts, so the third part is very small. I want to try to convince people that having a common upper ontology is a good thing, and that uh, the focus of the common upper ontology should be the set of basic concepts which is sufficient to specify the meanings of all of the more specialized concepts. And for those who feel that you'll never have a um, sufficient vocabulary to specify everything we realistically understand, that the basic inventory will expand, but we don't know how fast, how large it will be. That's a question to be determined by experiment. The notion is there is some small number of concepts that by combination will allow you to define or specify logically all the other concepts you would want to specify. Having said that, I then want to say that ontologies are hard to use and languages for native speakers are easy to use and that in order to make ontologies easy to use, I want to try to convince people that we should focus on a linguistic defining vocabulary. Those things already exist. And to create parallels, links from the linguistic defining vocabulary to the common upper ontology so that people can define their concepts, specify their concepts in ordinary language and have that automatically translated into the logical concepts of the upper ontology and likewise to be able to query the ontology to see what's in it. And then uh, having proposed that, what I would like to point out is that regardless of how fast or how successful the work on the upper ontology and on creating automatic translations of language 
to ontological specifications, no matter how fast they happen to be, having clearly defined concepts is really a good idea anyway. And this is something we can do immediately without waiting. So for slide three, we'll start. And uh, I want to try to explain why I think having a common ontology is really good. We are all familiar with uh, applications that are self-contained. They may have data. Uh, they will have short-term memory, which may be just uh, individual numbers or strings that are passed around within the program. You have a procedural program, an interface to the outside, and then that program tightly integrates all the meaning of whatever is inside of it in its procedural code. Uh, next slide, number four. Uh, but we are getting uh, into systems where the data is dispersed and the um, procedures that use the data may be dispersed. And for that, we have to find ways of passing the information back and forth. And so here's a slide that Leo Oberst has created, and it fairly well explains the, the direction. The bottom left is where we start off with implicit tight coupling, one program, all the data is in there, all the meaning is in procedural code. Uh, and then as you look at the right, as you go up, you have uh, several systems, uh, larger groups, whole communities, and then the internet, the world, and eventually the universe. Um, and uh, on the left, as Peter just indicated, um, the ways of handling this, the languages that are used to try to handle the communication among these different systems at different levels, as you go up, you require greater expressiveness uh, of meaning. And we are sort of a little about about halfway up right now where people are using, R, using RDF and OWL very commonly. And as you go further up toward the uh, greater um, explicitness of meaning and loose coupling, you'll be getting into ontologies. Okay, is there another? Okay. And on the, in, in the blue, we're still on slide four. You see the... Uh, the various ways or applications that use these different levels of expressiveness of data. So this is where we're generally heading from small, tightly coupled uh, systems in which the information and meaning is implicit in the program toward a more and more explicit description of meanings so that multiple dispersed applications can use them is that you can encode meaning and applications can use that encoded meaning in ways that the originators and creators of that knowledge never even contemplated or intended. In order to reach that point, the information has to be very explicit. Okay, and then I'll go to slide five. So the, uh, this just is a, a one graphic of the uh, current type of federated programs we have. We have, may have more than one data store. We have a program in, in yellow that operates on the data store. It's still a, it, it's a, a common operating system, sorry, that accesses the data store. Then you may have several applications, App 1, App 2, and App 3. And these can communicate with each other through some kind of common message format and common uh, protocol. 
and they in interact with the user through the interface. How complex the message format and protocol has to be depends upon your application. If all your applications are arithmetic applications, then message format and protocol may only have to be how to encode a number, something very simple. If you're an office suite, such as a um, Microsoft Office suite, you may have to have some knowledge of numbers, strings, tables, images, and what a page looks like and a page layout. And if, you, and if all of your applications understand that, then they can now pass that information uh, back and forth and, and reuse the information in each other application. So this is still the upper ontology, in effect, the, uh, in, in that system is just those few bits of, of concepts, number, string, image, table, page. That enough. That's enough to allow uh, multiple Office suite applications to interact with each other, perhaps more and maybe oversimplifying. And now the next slide, slide five. So we say, looking at it that way, uh, we can see that the upper ontology is, is all what in, is in effect the, the ultimate development of the most expressive message content and format specification so that you can have not just tightly coupled uh, office applications that they only have to understand a few concepts talking to each other. You can have many different applications, including a very complex ones like natural language understanding, that can talk to other uh, applications. You may have probabilistic reasoning. You may have spatial reasoning. You may have expert systems in any field. These systems will be able to talk to each other if they can take input and create their output using the same format and, and uh, have the meaning encoded in that message format. When you get to complex applications, the requirements of the messaging format gets extremely complex, and that's, in effect, where you really need a highly expressive upper ontology to be able to encode any kind of meaning that's, uh, of anything that a person may want to, do, to describe. Now, uh, the ontology then not only serves as a messaging format, it also is the format in which the knowledge itself is stored that you have all of the applications in a federated application that uses a common ontology will have access to, to the same knowledge base. They can talk to each other. They can access the same knowledge base. And that's where I uh, would like to say the, the, the upper ontology is going. Um, discussions among people who have been talking about upper ontologies have often focused on the notion of ontologies being able to unify different databases, and perhaps I think the people at Unicorn may emphasize that, um, uh, and you can contradict me later. <laughs> uh, and uh, others may describe the upper ontology as being able to unify multiple domain ontologies, and that's both, that's both true. But what I'm emphasizing here is that you not only can integrate knowledge bases, you can integrate applications, different reasoning methods. You can have your reasoning method be as specialized as you want, do it any way you want, and you can still talk to other systems if you can take your, out, your input and express your output in a language that is understood by other applications. And if you're, the concepts you are passing are complicated, you will need an ontology to do that. Okay, now to slide seven.
you can get more complicated if you want to talk about agents, individual agents, and you see uh, we're thrown in the same slide basically, but with some pink uh, boxes that indicate that uh, the agent may have a certain level of self-awareness, uh, it may have an episodic memory, so it remembers what its transactions have been with other agents, and it will have to have some kind of what they call here the overlord, the controlling agent that, that uh, can decide what has to be done at any given time, decide what kind of reasoning methods are required, and so on. But ultimately, again, all the message passing, the knowledge, and so on, has to be expressed within, with the same language in order to achieve accurate transmission of information. And if we go to the next slide... Just quickly to, to indicate that if you talk about individual agents, you start getting into complex questions of, of goals, which can include problems of uh, the agents having to obey laws, community expectations, as well as what the boss wants them to do. Okay, on to slide nine. Next slide. Going back, this is the same slide we had before for the upper ontology fit. I'll just uh, emphasize again, the upper ontology is the common message passing protocol among different knowledge bases and different reasoning systems. And then if we go to the next slide, slide 10. Losing you a little, Pat. Pardon? Losing you a little. Oh, I'm not, okay, I'm, I'll try a little. Am I, am I better now? Louder? Yes. Okay, thank you. Okay, uh, now you can ask the question, uh, if you want to integrate multiple applications, multiple reasoning systems, is it enough to have a, a good message passing? System. And by coincidence, it turned out that the, in the latest issue of AI Magazine, there is um, a number of articles specifically, specifically dealing with the issue of intelligent agents and a, 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 attempting to achieve human-level um, performance in computers. And uh, Nicholas Casamatis is dealing with this question. He com comments that just having modules that pass messages will probably not be enough to achieve what we want to achieve because you need uh, the algorithms to have somewhat tighter coupling to be able to be influenced by each other. And I would say that uh, the um, upper ontology, as, as I'm visualizing it here, uh, does go beyond a simple message passing system because, as I mentioned, it also expresses the knowledge in the knowledge base, and each reasoning system has access to the same knowledge base. And in addition, if you go down to slide 11, it is possible that if your individual reasoning systems uh, are aware of each other, they could be developed independently by a group who has no, no interest uh, in using anyone else's reasoning system, but they do have interest in using the knowledge that other people generate. Or reasoning systems may be aware of each other, and I have a diagram here where uh, case-based reasoning may be aware of natural language understanding and vice versa. And in that case, they might be able to call each other uh, in, in, in the course of their own execution. Uh, so depending on what the developers want, they may be able to couple their uh, programs tightly by actually calling each other directly rather than just passing messages. Um, and, and this will still uh, require that they use some form of, uh, some common form of knowledge representation to make this work properly. Okay, going on to slide 12. I'd like to say that uh, not only does the um, ontology enable uh, tight, well, tight 
decoupling and message passing and federation of multiple reasoning systems, but even within a single reasoning system, such as natural language understanding. In the box in yellow, I have it pointing out to the task controller. Uh, the upper ontology, even within natural language understanding, may permit different types of reasoning within natural language understanding uh, to be developed separately and yet interact uh, closely with each other by, by using the same conceptual language so that the, um, the common message passing may go down several levels. That is, say you, you may decompose your task in several levels and still use the basic knowledge representation uh, to enable the, the different levels to communicate with each other effectively. Well, at the lower levels, you probably won't need anything as complicated as what's at the higher levels. Okay, now if we go to slide 12. Um, 13, actually. Uh, sorry, right. Next slide is slide 13. Um, now, the, the, the goal of having um, multiple independently developed knowledge bases or programs talk to each other uh, has also been discussed um, from the point of view of you know, people developing their own ontologies independently and then mapping them to each other, and particularly in the uh, some of the semantic web um, groups that are particularly interested in implementing the semantic web. This is a vision that they have in mind as something that is possible. And uh, I think the, whether or not that will work depends on one couple of factors. One, if you think modest accuracy is allowable, for example, if you're just trying to search for information, and it's okay to miss some stuff as long as somewhere in that vast redundant space of knowledge that is the web, you pick up something that's relevant to you, then, then that may work very well. If you're using very shallow reasoning, then mapping one ontology to another may work quite well. But if you really want to use ontologies to their full potential with all of the axiomatizations and implications and, and logical inferences that they enable, all I can say is that I've tried mapping ontologies to each other, and I, I can't conceive of it as ever happening in a way that will allow accurate transmission of information. And it's actually, I'd say, impossible in theory for one reason, that when people build ontologies independent of other people, they do it because they're going to ignore some things. They're going to conflate some concepts that they don't need to be distinguished. They'll ignore some concepts that they don't need to be distinguished. And in general, they do not specify very explicitly the assumptions and the meanings of the concepts they create. And therefore, anyone who attempts to, even a human, with, with, with a lot of experience in trying to do it, attempts to unite these ontologies, it becomes virtually impossible because you're not quite certain what would the original rulers intended. And if you don't know what the meanings of the individual concepts were, you can't be sure how they relate to each other. But, again, if you only need modest accuracy or if you're going to implement only shallow reasoning, mapping may work very well for those applications. And, of course, it's something that people can do right now with ontologies that exist. And so it's very attractive and, and very worthwhile pursuing. Okay, slide 14. Um, I have a question here. The slide 14 says first-order logic, and I put that in because there 
is a widespread assumption, at least implicit, if not explicit, that when people build ontologies that are expressed in first-order logic, that you're intending only to use first-order logic uh, when you do your reasoning. And that's not necessarily true. Um, one expresses ontologies in first-order logic because that's very explicit and well understood. What you're attempting to do is to create knowledge in a form that is unambiguous and in a format that is widely understood. And uh, But when you want to use that knowledge, you can use it in any kind of reasoning system. And as I, as I indicated um, with the multiple types of reasoning, uh, the knowledge expressed in first-order logic can ultimately be used in, in any, of the, any kind of reasoning system. And the question will often come up a lot about probabilistic. Well, you can code probabilities in first-order logic. You can specify them. Uh, the typical first-order logic uh, inference algorithms don't use probabilities, but you can describe them and encode them, and they can be used by, by systems that want probabilities. Okay, on to 15, slide 15. So having tried to convince you that the, uh, having a common upper ontology is a good thing, uh, it will help you do things by unifying multiple knowledge bases, unifying multiple reasoning methods, multiple applications, why not just use one of the existing upper ontologies? And the answer is you could. Okay. Uh, so why don't, why don't people do it? Well, it's time consuming. It's, it's they're difficult to get, to get to use. Uh, effectively. And uh, I've been worrying and wondering about this particular question for years, and uh, I think I've come to the conclusion that basically those who are in the process of wanting to formalize their knowledge and wanting to create an ontology to describe their field may take the time to look at some of the upper ontology. I think Doug um, Lennett says he's had over, over 50,000 or 500,000 downloads of the open psych system. But when I look in the literature, uh, it's hard to find examples of people who have used the open site system, created an application, and then published it. Uh, and I think people have to do this calculation. You look at the open site and you say, well, this is complex. How long is it going to take me to figure out how to use this properly? And then they look at their application, which is very likely to be relatively simple, and say, how long is it going to take me to build my own ontology? And the answer is probably going to be, in almost every case, a lot easier to build your own ontology and try to learn how to use psych and use theirs. And so I suspect that's the main reason why people aren't using them. Now, if that is a major factor, then the question is whether there's any way we can make it easier to use complex ontologies like psych or sumo or dolce. I think the answer is yes, and it is by using ordinary language, the kind of language people already know how to use and then creating translation mechanisms, language understanding, limited language understanding programs that can take descriptions in a controlled language and convert it into the ontological specification. And that's where I'd like to go now. Slide 15? 16. Oh, 16, yes, I'm sorry. Okay, now I'll just reiterate the outline. Part two, I want to say that uh, if you have a linguistic defining vocabulary that will allow you to describe in language, ordinary language, everybody knows the ideas that you, you want to express, then 
if you can create a parallel, uh, a mapping of that defining vocabulary to the fundamental ontology and be able to translate in both directions, that will allow you to make the ontology itself much easier to build, understand, and exploit by using language rather than worrying about the guts and nuts and bolts of ontology and logic. So on to slide 17. What is defining vocabulary? Okay, um, I get this term from the Longman's Dictionary of Contemporary English, the LDAS, which has been around for a while. I think it was the first one to use a controlled defining vocabulary. They have about 2,000 words, and all the 60, well, originally 64,000 words in their dictionary now, I think they're over 100,000. All their dictionary words are defined using only the controlled defining vocabulary. And they originally did that because they wanted to make it really easy for people to understand the definitions. And in particular, their, their market was the um, people who are learning English as a second language. Who, who can, you can hope that they can learn the basic 2,000 words. And with that, you can provide them with a dictionary that will give them a shot at understanding the more complicated words that are composed from the basic words. Uh, I've taken this defining vocabulary, this lexical defining vocabulary, and by analogy uh, suggested that there is also a conceptual defining vocabulary, an ontology. Uh, and, and the term upper ontology has been debated as to where the upper ontology begins and ends, and, and you don't have to debate that. The point is there, some part of the upper ontology could serve as the basic set of concepts which can be used in combination to describe any other concepts you want to describe. And, and um, I'll provide maybe one example. We don't have time for a lot. So it's a special type of upper ontology. But the idea, again, here we have a conceptual defining vocabulary. You combine concepts to create more specific concepts, perhaps the main concepts by analogy with the linguistic defining vocabulary where you can combine a bunch of words and with that describe the meaning of other words in the language. So on to slide 18. Uh, I mentioned that LDAS has about 2,000 words. These are root words. Uh, when I tried to do uh, stemming on them, I come out to something close to 9,000 words. Out of the few, it's over 9,000 now with all the morphological variants. Not all the more. Most of them was common morphological variants. Uh, because the 2,000 root words have are used in more than one sense in the Longman's Dictionary, it is probable that there will be at least 4,000 individual senses, let's say individual concepts, that will be contained in the conceptual defining vocabulary. And as people try to define more and more specialized concepts, the chances are that people will discover that the whatever inventory of basic concepts, whatever inventory of basic words you may have had at one time, is really not quite adequate and that one has to add more words to the basic vocabulary. So we can expect the basic vocabulary to grow. How fast it will grow, how big it will become, we don't know. Um, I'm guessing it won't exceed 10,000 concepts. I can't say for sure because we haven't really tried to do it in precisely this way. Okay, so next slide, slide 19. 
And uh, just reiterating here in this slide what I've said before, the linguistic defining vocabulary and the conceptual defining vocabulary, which is a form of upper ontology, should be able to be linked. One would hope that you could create uh, language understanding programs that would take a description in using the linguistic controlled vocabulary and from it automatically create the logical specification. Now, we all know that language understanding is an extremely difficult problem. Uh, but if you constrain the problem in this way, it becomes a lot more tractable than the tasks that people have been doing recently with language understanding. And what people have been doing recently with language understanding mostly has been taking terabytes of text and trying to extract from it information which puts an extreme premium on speed and shallow processing, and they just haven't had time to get into real deep level of understanding in that kind of language understanding. Here we're looking for something different. Uh, we're willing to accept relatively slow that if you just if you can parse a sentence in a few seconds, maybe even 30 seconds, really slow, uh, that'll be acceptable to, uh, as a means of translating your definition of your concept from the linguistic vocabulary into logical specification. You're restricting the vocabulary itself, the number of words, which, which will make life a lot easier for the language understanding system. Uh, and you're restricting the, uh, the, the format, the formalisms, the, uh, the genre, the type. Uh, you're going to discourage people from being poetic or humorous or using excessive metaphors unnecessarily. Uh, when they create their definitions, and by eliminating those really difficult problems in language understanding, you'll have a much better chance of actually creating human-level language understanding, the basic vocabulary, which probably is going to be something like the vocabulary of you five or six-year-old. And you have a shot at that, uh, whereas the, the general understanding is much more difficult. So what I'm saying is that we, uh, if, if you accept the notion that having a linguistic defining vocabulary paralleling the conceptual defining vocabulary is a good idea and can help make it easier to create ontologies which will allow us to interrupt our systems to interoperate more, more fluently, um, it is plausible that, that this language understanding task that is required as part of that system can be solved in a reasonable amount of time. Okay, slide 20. Now, a question has been asked as well, how does it differ from other ontology projects? Well, two things. Uh, for one thing, I haven't, I'm not aware of anyone else who suggested that we actually take the linguistic defining vocabulary notion and apply it to ontology. I have myself spoken about that with other ontologists. And, uh, you know, it, it piques some people's interest, but they're just not interested in that sort of thing per se. As far as I'm aware, nobody's actually working on that. The closest uh, probably comes is the Psych Project. And people at Psych, of course, are interested in human-level language understanding and human-level conceptual processing. And they do have natural language programs ongoing. I'm not familiar with everything that's going on at Psych. I've tried to ask them. And as far as I can tell, they're not really doing anything like this uh, in, in, in this constrained format. So the, the focus here is the primary importance of defining, defining, creating a defining vocabulary. 
You're defining ontology vocabulary, defining linguistic vocabulary, creating mappings and relations and translation programs between the two. And this is not, as far as I'm aware, being done anywhere else. And uh, the last note here, the automatic conversion of linguistic to logical specifications will be an essential element of the kind of project that I'm describing. Okay, slide 21. So the question, looking at this, you're probably saying, well, so you're talking about basic research, and this is, you're not talking about doing immediate real-world applications. That's correct. Uh, I'm talking about creating a system, and this is going to take a lot of work before it gets to the point where it actually can do useful things. Uh, we just don't know what the minimum set of conceptual components are um, to, uh, to be used in combination. We have upper ontologies, which give us some notion. We have linguistic vocabularies, which give us some notion. But in fact, uh, we won't know the actual answer of how big it has to be in order to encode what level of conceptual uh, complexity. And we won't know how fast it will expand or whether it'll be so difficult to use that people just won't use it. Um, these have to be discovered by actually trying it out. And slide 22. Uh, the question uh, you may ask is, well, is, is this something I'm just telling you about uh, and this is a project I'm planning on engaging in and you can go off and forget about it? And the answer is no, no. I'm going to suggest there are things that all of us can do and that the need for information communication is immediate right now. We're all aware of it. It's been talked about a lot. And the point I want to make in the rest of this talk is that if you can describe the knowledge in your knowledge classification system in clear terms which everybody else can understand, this will by itself be a big help in getting the different communities to understand each other. And uh, what I would propose is that there are actually no negative side effects to trying that. That if you try to create clear definitions, I can't think of any harm that will come from doing that. Okay, on to slide 23. Now, um, as we know, if you've ever looked at a definition in a specialized uh, um, terminology, the definitions themselves contain many specialized terms. And so when I'm talking about controlled defining vocabulary, we're visualizing this is going to be indefinitely expandable. There will be a core, uh, probably at least three levels, which will be a core which will expand very slowly, maybe reach a, an, an asymptotic level. Then beyond that, there will be uh, a larger defining vocabulary, what I call the supplemented defining vocabulary, uh, and in that supplemented defining vocabulary, all the terms that are not in the basic vocabulary will be defined using terms in the basic vocabulary. So that all the terms that one uses, even in the supplemented, if you use the supplemental defining vocabulary to define your domain terms, then your domain terms will be defined recursively with respect to the basic defining vocabulary. And then, of course, every community is going to have, want to have their own specialized vocabulary. So I can imagine you having three levels. And the specialized defining vocabulary, the specialized defining vocabulary will define highly specialized terms for particular domains and communities. 
these specialized defining vocabularies will be defined, uh, the, the terms in those specialized defining vocabularies will be defined with respect to the supplemented defining vocabulary, which will have terms defined with respect to the basic defining vocabulary. So ultimately, any term should ultimately be comprehensible to anybody that understands the basic language by working your way down the, the various levels of definition. Um, and if you if you suspect that it might take a while for a non-specialist to learn what a term means through this technique by going to more and more general terms, that's probably true. Of course, it's going to take anybody uh, a while to learn any new field. So that, that shouldn't be a surprise. Can I ask a question? Yes, of course. Is in your supplemental uh, vocabulary, are you looking at that as a sort of a staging area or a sort of candidate for the core vocabulary, or is that a space for the less used uh, vocabulary? No, no. I, I think that that will that will expand dramatically. Um, I, I, uh, I think that that the um, the supplemental vocabulary, the one that most people use, okay. Uh, and because they will include the terms in the basic vocabulary as well. Um, and, and so when you want to define a term, let's say you have a specialized term, you want to define it. I would imagine a person trying to define it using the terms in the supplemented defining vocabulary. Okay. Uh, and and if, if, the ter if you find that the terms you use in your definition do not exist in the supplemented defining vocabulary, and if you do not already have your own specialized domain vocabulary, then you may want to create a new term and add it to the supplemented defining vocabulary. And then if you do that, what you'll try to do is you'll take this term, you'll try to define this term that you're using in your definition, try to define it with respect to the basic defining vocabulary. And this is a process we're going, it's going to have to, we're going to have to learn how to do this properly and, and efficiently. Um, it's something I've only experimented with a little bit, and uh, I have not consulted with the lexicographers over at Longmans who have probably agonized over the same question for years. Uh, but, I, but we're looking at this in, in, a, in a really a different, um, from a different perspective, because Longmans are creating definitions for people only, whereas we also have in the back of our heads that the definitions we create will ultimately be used by computers. So this is not quite exactly the same task as creating a, uh, a, a typical human language linguistic vocabulary. But, but uh, anyway, I, I, I'm not sure if I've answered the question. The, 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 you'll probably use the, 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 the general defining vocabulary, which is the supplemented defining vocabulary, and try to supplement that. Or if you're, in a, if you're creating specialized vocabularies for a specialized community, you might very well use your specialized vocabulary, defining vocabulary first. Right. And my question actually was, when will a, 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 a word or a term in the supplemental vocabulary be moved into the base or into the core? It shouldn't. Okay, the question of when, uh, when you'll have to move a term into the base, the base should only be as large as it has to be. If you can define, if you have a term that you want to use in, in a definition to define something you're interested in, and it's not in the general defining vocabulary, which means, of course, it's not in the base either. Uh, then you will try to define it with respect to the terms in the base defining vocabulary. You, want to, you don't want to slur this over or just do a half-assed job. You really want to do the proper definition 
really describe what it means. And if you can't do that, um, then it may mean that the term you're defining is itself primitive. It has primitive elements that, uh, that cannot be reduced to the terms in the basic defining vocabulary. At that point, if you can't define your term with respect to terms in your defining vocabulary, the, the, the base vocabulary, then we might want to add that to the base vocabulary. Thank you. One, one more very quick question. And, and uh, well, let, me, let, me, let me give you um, okay. Let me, let me give you another uh, possibility. For example, if you have two terms and and you can really only define these two terms with respect to each other, I, I don't have an example in my mind, but let us let us imagine that there are two concepts which are complementary, and and you you can only say about one. Well, this is a type of dog, and it's not that, and the other one is also a type of dog, but it's not this, and that's all you can say about it then this becomes primitive. There are primitive elements in that concept which, which cannot be reduced. And so you might have to push that down to the level of the base vocabulary. Okay, one very quick question. Are, are all the vocabulary like single words or are you taking... At, at present, uh, I will show you a little utility and at present the utility only uses single words. It should use phrases. No, it should be phrases in there, absolutely. Phrases are really part of language. Patrick, this is uh, Roy Robach. How are you doing? Um, one of the things as I'm hearing this, uh, it, I'm very comfortable with what you're saying here. It, it's very close with my thinking and the way I tried to approach this stuff. Uh, you're going into more detail in a lot of the linguistic stuff than I have before. Um, but one of the things that appears to me, looking at slide 23, if you think about the idea of a thesaurus, uh, thesaurus with uh, preferred terms and then variant terms and then perhaps variants of variants, right. uh, it seems in some way your basic irreducible defining vocabulary, your LDOCE, uh, is in essence a, a minimal set of preferred terms. And then from that, you build up all the variant terms that might uh, might be used by various communities uh, to describe, you know, their domain, their world. Uh, no, no, uh, I, don't, I don't think that would be the best way to describe it for this reason. Mm. That when okay. you when you when you take the the terms in the what I'm, what I'm describing as the base vocabulary, and I'm sorry, I may have, I may not have expressed this properly. Uh, you will uh, you will have other concepts in mind, okay? And, and none of those concepts will actually be included in the base vocabulary. They will not be synonyms of anything in the base vocabulary. You will have to construct more complicated concepts, more complicated ideas, more complicated uh, terms which have a more complicated meaning using the components. So the, the base vocabulary is a set of components you use to construct more complicated concepts. Right. And 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 uh, in in the case of a thesaurus with preferred and and deprecated terms, usually we're talking about synonyms, just saying the term is there. Okay. And, but now, now, of course, we will have synonyms. The vocabularies will all have synonyms, also, of course. Yes. Yeah. So you're uh, talking about building composites from the right. basic. So so yeah. so the the basic uh, uh, vocabularies, conceptual and uh, linguistic, uh, are the components from which you construct more complicated. Yeah, we're in agreement. We're just using different terms for it. Okay, thank you. Any other questions at this point? Sorry. Stunning silence. Okay. Uh, we're on to slide 24. Okay. Um, at, at this point, um, another, another question comes up is, uh, is that you can, you can always ask, well, have we succeeded? And it depends on the, the level of, of um, functionality you want. Um, if you have gotten to the point where anytime you want to define a term
term in a your your own specialized community, you can take the terms in your defining vocabulary and succeed almost all the time, ninety some percent of the time, better yet, better than ninety five percent of the time. Uh, that the terms in your, your own local defining vocabulary are sufficient for you to say everything you want to say about this new concept, this new term you want to introduce. Then, then you will have, I would say, a working controlled defining vocabulary on hand. Um, I mean, nobody wants to have to sit down and redefine terms. You, you want to write a definition, you don't want to have to sit down and redefine uh, the terms you're using in your definition. It's a nuisance. And so what we can visualize is that in a project of this kind, at the early phases, it will be a lot of work and a lot of nuisance. Every time you sit down and you try to write a definition, you're going to find two, three, four, who knows how many words that just aren't in the base vocabulary, and you're going to have to define them. So there's going to be a very a large amount of work. If, if anybody wants to use this, this process, there'll be a lot of work to start. But as time goes by, it will get easier. There are a finite number of words, and as we all know from Zipf's law, um, the, the more common words are the ones we use most frequently, and, and over time, it, it will become less and less often that one will have to stop and, and, and redefine a term that you want to use in a definition. I don't know how long this is going to take. It depends on how much effort there is, um, and, and it depends on how accurate the estimate is. is that the Longman's Dictionary inventory of terms is actually most of what is required. It may turn out, if you look at Longman's definitions, and I'll show you a few, uh, that they're relatively simplistic and don't really provide all the information you want you might want to provide for an ontological definition. And so perhaps Longman isn't, by itself will need significant supplementation. I'm not certain at this point. I'm sure it will need some. Uh, I, I don't know how much. And, okay, so on to tw slide 25. And then the question is, uh, say, the, the, the core of the suggestion I'm making is that you have to have a language processing program that can convert the linguistic definitions into the conceptual specifications and vice versa. And... Uh, you also want to know at what point have we succeeded in doing that. Well, probably you can have uh, you can have as, as test ontologists create what would be say a gold standard description of a domain expert um, has, describes to an ontologist a concept they want to encode. The ontologist will write down the linguistic structure that the ontologist feels represents it. And then if you have the domain expert write the English language definition in the form they're comfortable with using the controlled vocabulary and then do an automatic translation, the question you'll come up with is how close is the automatically created definition come to that which would have been created by an ontologist based on the same uh, ideas. This will be an interesting experiment. I'm sure that at the early phases there will be a lot of differences and the question is how fast this is going to converge. If it turns out that they converge, uh, then you'll reach a point where people should be able to enter knowledge and ask reasonable questions about that knowledge and get correct answers out of it. Now existing, okay, we've had um, natural language interfaces, databases for a long, long time, since the 70s. 
uh, and uh, ontologies now have a certain amount, of, some of the ontologies have a certain amount of natural language query capability. And the natural language, linguistic computation, linguistic community has some demonstration projects where you can you can query and put in queries and get that. So this is, asking a question and getting an answer is not, is not something new. The question here uh, is, is whether is, is just how accurately you can do it, how close you can get to the kind of deep conceptual understanding that humans have. The point that I would have is that if you really are looking for deep human conceptual understanding, I think it's going to be a lot easier to do that on the basis level first before you get to the more complicated things, before you start trying to interpret terabytes, see if you can encode and properly interpret the kind of language that, say, five- and six-year-olds use. And if we can do that, that will be an accomplishment and should form a, a, a basis for doing more complicated language, uh, language tasks. Okay, next slide. Now, I'll just give you some examples. So what, is, what, is it, what does it mean to have a definition in a controlled vocabulary? These are taken from the Longman's Dictionary, the raspberry, the soft, sweet red berry, or the bush that this berry grows on. Okay, so there's two different concepts in there. There's a berry and there's a bush. So in, in the um, ontology, you probably want to differentiate these two, uh, and you would want to encourage people writing definitions to, instead of writing run-on definitions like this, this or that, uh, to, to break them up into different senses. Um, and as you can see, a soft, sweet red berry is pretty underspecified. I think uh, if you really want to know what a raspberry is, you'd probably have to put more information in there, too. But this is what you see in Longman's. Obligation, moral or legal duty to do something. Very generic. What's a duty? Well, I'll, I'll talk about that later. Um, automobile, car. Here's a synonym. In, 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 car in... Uh, Longman's is just a synonym for automobile. And they have car defined, vehicle four wheels and engine, can carry a small number of passengers. Obviously, the Longman's people have never ridden an Iceta, which has three wheels. Um, so I, I would probably have to define that differently myself. But that's the basic idea. Okay, next slide. Now the question is, if you really want to try seriously to write a definition that... Uh, it can be translated automatically into a logical specification and back. Uh, let us inquire what, what uh, a very simple example. You mentioned that uh, an obligation was a duty. So you have to, in long ones, what's a duty? A duty is something you have to do because it is morally or legally right. Okay. What does that mean? Well, I don't think that really tells you very much um, because what's happening is in, in this definition, Longman is using the word have to, which expresses obligation. It's like saying you have an obligation. So it, it's almost circular. Um, so if I were creating a definition that a machine could understand, I might try to be a bit more specific. And, and how I might do it is something like down below. It has several parts. It's an action, which an intelligent agent must perform or refrain from. Some obligations are to refrain from things, not to do things. Thou shalt not kill an obligation. That's part one. Part two, the failure to perform or refrain from that action carries some kind of negative consequences, some undesirable consequences for the agent. And 
I don't specify it in here, but in, in the language it would be, in the ontology would be specified. The uh, obligations are created by authorities of some kind, and the failure to perform obligation may be enforced by an authority. Now, in red, you've seen the words that are not in the um, supplemented vocabulary. So here's the definition I want to create, and already there's one, two, three, four words, but I'd have to sit down and try to redefine those with respect to the basic vocabulary. And if you go down the next slide, so if, if um, you were to encode that in, say, KIF, Knowledge Interchange Format, first order logic specification, it might look something like this. This is an implication that uh, if an agent has a duty, then uh, this thing we call duty is either an action or an inaction. Uh, there is some kind of authority, and there is a consequence. And the duty is the imposed by the authority, and the consequence is an undesirable thing for that agent. And if the agent doesn't perform the duty, then it's possible has liability, it's possible that the authority may enforce that consequence. And uh, this, I think, captures some of the notion of what a duty is, and uh, those of you who look at this may say, well, there's other things, or perhaps you disagree with that, that's okay. Uh, you may have actually variations on notion of duty, each of which is slightly different from each other. And these, uh, if they're actually different logically, there would be different concepts, related but different. So different. you often hear people saying, well, a lot of people have different ideas of what the duty is. That's fine. Every different notion of duty can be encoded logically. It will have a place in the ontology. Uh, which one will be used most commonly? Well, you might have a, a, a generic duty mode saying one of these depends on who the agent is, something like that. We know how to do this. We, we, we can encode these things logically. Uh, the question I'm dealing with here is, for those people who don't want to get into the nuts and bolts of uh, logical specification, can you create a linguistic description that can be automatically converted into this kind of logical specification? I think the answer is yes, but that has to be proven. Okay, next slide, number 29. As an example of the sorts of things that you'll find in the basic vocabulary, uh, there's going to be a lot of metaphorical things that you have the, the objects of the real world that you can touch and taste and see and feel. Uh, and then you have somewhat more abstract or uh, general notions which, which have, are, are analogized to the, um, to the spatial notions. You can have things like orientation, proximity in space or time, shapes, motion, edges, contact, body shape, parts, structural relations, uh, things that you, that you learn, you, you learn the basic physical concepts and then you apply these by analogy to more uh, abstract concepts. And you can ask the question, for example, how many different things can you say are high? Well, anything that has a numerical measure, you can say uh, the measure is high, so high temperature, low temperature. This is a spatial metaphor. Um, and 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 it's not it's not really literally high. It has to be included separately. All of that is the sort of things people use every day, and it has to be in the uh, basic conceptual vocabulary. And it has to have a some kind of word in the defining vocabulary that expresses how to use it in the language. Okay, slide thirty. 
Kind of interesting thing. Um, as I mentioned before, people have been building applications these days which don't really need the complexity of upper ontology, and they get away without ontologies, and that's fine. Other people have decided that they need ontologies, and they use restricted logics like description logic and OWL ontology, and that's fine too. Uh, is there any possibility that these um, these knowledge specifications that are not encoded in the upper ontology itself can interact with something that's encoded in the upper ontology? I think the answer is yes. Uh, that you can have, you can create an application that has as simple a knowledge representation as you need, and yet it can interoperate with other, even more complex knowledge representations if you agree that you will use, you will map the terms you use to terms in the more complex representation. And um, the principle could be applied transitively. If you go to slide 31, next slide. You can have what I call a definition acceptance hierarchy that down at the bottom you may have a taxonomy or a thesaurus or a terminology and you may define your terms. I hope you'd use a controlled vocabulary, but whatever. Okay. Uh, and whatever application you use that uses these concepts in, in relatively simple um, uh, knowledge representations, if you say that here's a person, I'm using the word person, and in my use of the word person, I'm looking up here in this owl ontology, this uh, general owl ontology, and uh, they have something called a human being, and what I call a person is called a human being, and I accept their definition. And, and that's what I mean. When I say person, that's what I mean. And the definition in that owl ontology will be exactly the same as the definition in a more complex axiomatic ontology, like psych or something. It won't have all the axioms. The owl ontology will not have all the axioms. But if the person using the owl ontology says, I know what the axioms are up there, I understand meaning that they're trying to express. Yes, that's what I mean by the term human being. You can have uh, your simple knowledge representation interact directly, or be um, interoperable, interoperate directly with anything using the more complex representation just by the fact that you agree that the most complex definition that anybody has ever created is what you mean. So I want to visualize as you have a linguistic definition in your complex ontology that, that tells you everything, everything that that needs to be known about that concept, and that when you you want to use an owl ontology that doesn't really need all those complex axioms, you still use the same linguistic definition. You say this is what I mean. I'm not using, I'm, I'm not axiomatizing it. I'm not ontologizing everything that's in there, but this is what I mean. All that complex stuff, that's what I mean when I'm using this term. And then somebody who's not even using an ontology at all, just a taxonomy or a thesaurus, can look up there and say, oh, yes, I see this definition. Yes, that's what I mean. And in fact, I'm only using a taxonomy. I'm not using any logical relations at all. And yet, that's what I mean. And your, op and your, your applications that accept the more complex definitions should be able to interrupt with anything and interoperate with anything that uses the more complex definitions. Slide 32. Okay, here's, here, this is a grand vision for something I'd like to see done uh, to create a language understanding program that can automatically translate from a relatively simple linguistic description into a precise ontological description, do it accurately. 
uh, is there anything we can do now? And the answer is, well, yeah. Uh, we can actually start using the defining vocabulary right now and see how that works out. Uh, there's going to be a lot of work to do in, in using defining vocabulary. So I say, when you first start attempting to use a controlled vocabulary to create your definitions, um, then you're going to have to define a lot of terms that aren't already in the controlled vocabulary. Now, I have to emphasize, we are not restricting what a person can say. You can use any terms you want to define your, your domain terms or describe whatever you want to describe. It's just that if you want to talk to other communities, if there are terms that you're using that are not already understood by everybody, then we want to describe those terms with using a language that everybody can understand. So what I'm saying is, use any terms you want, but if they're not already in the general controlled vocabulary, create definitions so that other people can understand what you're talking about, too. And I'll emphasize this again and again. The, the notion of using common language, the notion of using common ontologies, is not to force people to do anything different anything differently from what they're doing now. Whatever you're doing now, continue to do it. It's probably optimal for your purposes. It's just that if you want your systems to interoperate with other systems, you must describe what you're doing in a language that everybody can understand. Conceptually, that language is the upper ontology. Linguistically, that language would be the controlled, the basic controlled vocabulary. If you can recursively define your terms with respect to the basic linguistic controlled vocabulary, you'll have a shot at explaining to people who are not specialists in your field exactly what you mean. Exactly what you mean. And with respect to the ontology, if you are you want you want to create and if you want to if you're an ontologist and you want to create ontology, you can use the upper ontology. If you're not an ontologist and you hope to have your systems ultimately work with conceptually uh, sophisticated semantic processing systems, then it would, if you use a linguistic defining vocabulary, you have to depend upon the linguistic translation from the language into um, the conceptual specifications. I don't know how long it will take. Obviously, it depends on how much effort is put into it. Um, but the point I'd make is, however long it takes, it's probably a lot easier to do that kind of human-level language processing than to attempt to do human-level language processing that starts off with terabytes of text and try to figure out how to interpret all these enormous various, various things that people are doing out there. Okay. Now, um, let's say there are three steps. You can, uh, if you want to try this. You want the next slide? Uh, well, I'll just, just reiterate this slide. If you want to try uh, to use the controlled vocabulary, you can start off by trying to create a definition of some term in your um, domain that you're interested in, and try to create it using the supplemented vocabulary, which is still virtually uh, identical to the, the base, uh, basic defining vocabulary. And then when you discover that there are words in your definition that are not in the, um, the uh, controlled the, the control vocabulary, the supplemented vocabulary, then try to define those terms with respect to the defining vocabulary. Now, at, um, 
I expect that what will happen is that different communities will use terms that are fairly general, but they will use them in different ways. And when one community defines a general term, I don't know, maybe an obligation. I mean, the financial community will find an obligation probably very differently from the way the legal community might. Um, they will define an obligation, and you will discover that so-and-so is defined an obligation, and I'm defining an obligation, and, hey, these are really not the same thing. Okay, well, they're different senses of that word. No problem there. So you'll have multiple senses for a particular word in, in the, in the, um, in the supplemented recovery. The supplemented recovery will have multiple senses. That's okay. We expect that. And then add the terms as you need them, and add the terms to your community vocabulary as you need them. Okay, now we'll go on to the next slide. Is there another slide? Oh, okay, yes. Okay, um, the defining vocabulary I mentioned, I, I took the Longman's Dictionary. As best I can tell, it's not really copyrightable. I think they've got a legal opinion that word lists are not, in general, copyrightable. And it's been around for a long time. As far as I know, Longman's never complained. So there it is. We're starting with that. <coughs> and throw in the morphological variations. And uh, what we have now on the, um, the ONTAC site is the Longman's Dictionary with all the morphological variations, 9,000 words constituting the basic uh, defining vocabulary. And I created a very, very simple, a really primitive application in Java that uh, will allow you to paste your uh, your proposed definition into a simple window and runs on the Windows XP uh, and, and, and check the, um, the definition against the defining vocabulary to see if there are any words in your proposed definition that are not already in the defining vocabulary. So that's where it is. It's available. You can, you can use it. Um, next uh, slide. Okay, this is a screenshot of the opening screen. That's the, the application. Now, I'm not a programmer. Just threw this up here, just just so that nobody will have any excuses. No excuse. You you you. There is a way very easily to check if something a definition you create is or is not using words that are not in the controlled vocabulary, and um, it tells you right in the opening screen what to do. Uh, Peter, do you want to run the demo? Peter, you there? Sure. Sorry. Okay. So Peter, Peter has set up a demo, uh, or, or uh, a way to use this. Okay, just show you how you can use it in practice. Okay. Uh, I, I brought. I, I sort of uh, followed Pat's instruction and and noted his utility. And this morning, I mean, when I confirmed Pat, I said, I mean, let's. It's just a Java program. What you do is you, you, you take the zip file and you unzip it in some separate directory. And you, just hit, you hit the back file and, and, and it'll run if you're lucky. <laughs> I haven't seen these problems yet. It's run for L2. Is it coming up? Yes. Uh, if, if you can't see it on your... Oh, okay, screen, refresh. Yeah, I, I had a refresh. In the yeah, uh, click on the VNC uh, refresh tab. Not your browser refresh tab because that would get you to reload the. VNC. Okay, at, at the top of that, if you're seeing a little black window that Peter just pulled up, at the top of the black window, there's one, two, three, four, five buttons. The right button says refresh. If you hit that, you should be able to see the window. Okay. Now, um, oh, here, uh, okay, Peter has written ontology. 
is a specification of a conceptualization. Now, if you first have to put down the dictionary file, tell you what dictionary file you're going to use. Peter, you want to click on the, the selected the, the dictionary file selector on the other side? Yes. Do you the, want the, the menu? Base or? Show the menu. Oh, okay. All right. Show the menu. Okay. The, the, the dictionary file menu, base CV text, that one, yes, okay. Okay, there's a base and a supplemental, uh, supplemental. Can you see? Oh, you know what? Okay. I'm not seeing it. Let me refresh again. Yes. Hang on, hang on. Refresh. Refresh again. I'm, I'm not seeing it. Okay, there it is. If, uh, Peter has clicked the um, the menu to the right of that thing. It says base CV text, and I've, all, I've only put in in the program three, base CV, supplemental CV, and community. So we're, you're back, Peter. I'm I'm, I'm viewing uh, not full screen now. Is that intentional? Uh, no, uh, I lost the application. Okay, I'm, it's back. Can you see it? Uh, well, I have to refresh to see it. Okay, I click click that in screen refresh. Okay, and now did you click the? Okay, uh, I'm still seeing the menu. Okay, you, you, you can click for supplemented CV. Try supplemented right. CV. Okay. And then... Okay, and then and then you say, they have to say use the dictionary file. To decide what dictionary you want to use. Okay. And when you click that, okay, it'll tell you if the dictionary has loaded... Um, correctly. Down there, it shows you how big the dictionary is, and that's loaded correctly, and then you can say, all right, check the spelling. Okay. You want to so, you check, you, so you're checking your definition, the spelling of your dictionary against that. Now, you'll want to refresh again, because uh, I'm not getting everything I should. Okay. If you refresh, can you see um, a little window pops up that says, oh, there's a word that wasn't recognized, and you have the option. You can just ignore it. Uh, it may be a number or something there. No, it, it doesn't actually worry about numbers, but it might be something with some numbers in it. Or you might want to modify it to change it. It might be a misspelling. Or you might just want to list all the unrecognized words. So did you just click list unrecognized words? List recognized words. Yeah, okay. okay. And uh, it tells you, okay, there are two unrecognized words, ontology and conceptualization. So in this definition, of ontology. It doesn't already know ontology, no surprise, but it doesn't know conceptualization either. And actually, that shouldn't be a surprise. So if you wanted to use this definition, then what you would have to do is to go back and define conceptualization. And as all of you know, one of the big problems with this definition of ontology is not many people know what conceptualization is anyway. So it's not a bad idea defining conceptualization so that we all understand what you're talking about. Okay. And and uh, anybody want to uh, make a suggestion as to something else to check? You want to define something? Anyone? Management. Okay. Uh, create a definition for management. Describe, describe your words what management is. Management is the resolution of complexity and diversity into a system of controlled order. Okay. 
you don't you don't have to check the dictionary again. You can just check spelling thing, and no surprise, there are words it doesn't know. Press refresh. I'm, I'm not getting the word. Okay. Thank you. I pressed uh, list of words. Okay, go go down the window, the bottom of the window. Okay. And it doesn't know management, doesn't know resolution, and doesn't know diversity. So you would, if you wanted to use this definition, you'd have to go back and define. Well, you're already defining management, so mm-hmm. that's okay. You could forget, forget about that one. But you have to define resolution and diversity mm-hmm. in order to use this okay. as a definition of management. Yeah. And, and as you know, there are several senses of resolution. And mm-hmm. so what you'd want to do here is define the specific sense that you mean. <laughs> Um, in this regard, uh, you, you didn't in, indicate the reference uh, such as WordNet to identify predefined uh, senses of words and senses. No, I, I, I think I think uh, creating creating. Uh, I should have. I, I had meant to put if I'd had time. I meant to put in uh, uh, somewhere in Word. one of those slides the question: Should we have a mapping to WordNet? And, and the answer to that question in the slide would be it goes without saying. Yes, we definitely want to create a, a mapping to work. Yeah, the M3 tool put together by the MMM group in Japan actually does that quite nicely. It might be something to look at. Okay, I'm not familiar with that. And I'm not sure. actually how, how is, what does that do specifically? It doodle uh, essentially will take, take a corpus of text and uh, pull out all the words yes. and, and give you the list of words. And then from that list of words, it will allow you to look up and select the word net sense. And then from that, it allows you to essentially automatically build a taxonomy of the words. And then from the taxonomy, you could take that taxonomy uh, and move it over to another related tool called M3. Yeah, M3 that will build an ontology. Of well, that, that might be actually. I, I don't know if there's a way for them to do something uh, very similar to this. Uh, no, I, I just say. If anybody, uh, if there are any programmers in the audience, um, and anybody has the slightest bit of interest, you know, feel free to uh, to create tools that 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 help in this process. Uh, the, one, the one you're describing would be nice. Uh, I, I haven't I haven't worked with it, so I, I guess I will look at all the help. All the help files are in Japanese, so it doesn't help much. <laughs> <laughs> I'll solve this, Scott. <laughs> Anyway, Japanese is actually quite interesting. The, the word, one of the reasons I picked the, uh, for the definition the, um, the word obligation and duty is that in English we usually say you must do something or you have to do something as they used in the LDAS, okay? In Japanese there is no term, uh, no one word that says must. There's no such term in Japanese. You know, in, in most English, uh, in European languages there is, but not in Japanese. So how do they say you have to do something? Well, they can say it, they just use a different phrase. If you want to, if you want to go, if you say I have to go someplace, you say something like "ikenakarebenmarimasen," which means if I don't go, that just won't do. <laughs> and and in effect, what they've done is they've broken down the notion of obligation into two of its component parts. Uh, an obligation means that if you don't do it, then then there's there's something oh. bad going to happen. <laughs> And the bad things, obligations, okay, if you want to get into the question, the obligations come in many different types. You know, you have moral and legal, but even within moral obligations, you have religious, community, and you can even have self-imposed obligations. And so what's the negative consequences of not performing a self-imposed obligation? Well, pangs of conscience. So I think the Japanese have it right. Uh, and, that, and that's why I, I, I created the, the definition of what I did there. Okay, so I think that's pretty much the end. Is that the end, Peter? We have one more slide or something? Uh, 
Uh, do you want to point people to, to take a look at uh, the supplemental vocabulary? Oh, yes, okay. Um, just to take a quick look, here we go. Peter has brought up, uh, let's say, we, we have the, the base vocabulary, and right now I do not have sets of definitions in the base vocabulary. Now, the, the definitions in Longman's are um, copyrighted, therefore I just can't use them. Uh, but what I do have here is I've created just a few words that are added to the base vocabulary and they're defined with respect to the base vocabulary and added them in. And so here what, what we have in this screen is the supplemental vocabulary. Actually, this is the, the supplemental words. The, uh, the supplemental vocabulary we use in the tool includes the base vocabulary plus these words as well. And when, when you put it into the, um, the list of words in the tool, you include not only the base word, but you include all the morphological variants. So you have accelerate. So accelerate is not in the base vocabulary, but it's in the supplemental vocabulary. When you put accelerate into the supplemented uh, vocabulary, you also put accelerated, accelerates, and accelerating as well. And you want to page down one or two just to show. Now, each of these words here, okay, just stop there. Each of these words is defined uh, using words that are either in the base CV or in the supplemented CV itself. So here you have an agent. And I'm defining this as an object that can cause changes to occur to other objects. That's the definition, the base definition. Now you have some commentary, most commonly used to refer to intelligent agents, such as people and organizations. And then a little more information, actions are caused by agents. So each of these, the question is whether you can uh, ultimately create logical specifications for each of these assertions. Uh, the question, in, in your definition here, which should it belong to, let's say, the uh, domain or, or the ontologues uh, or, or ontology community's definition, because, I mean, it's probably only the AI and the ontology community that would commonly use this as uh, the, the term agent to refer to an intelligent agent. Normally, I mean, let's say if I were in the travel industry, an agent means something totally different. That would be a different sense, yes. There, there are, so, so uh, I, most, of these, most of these show only one sense. You see, for example, just above that, achieve. It's not the sense, but rather, I mean, does this work? Oh, does this definition belong here, or should it go in? Oh yeah, the, yeah. See, it's not in the it's not in the base it's not in the base CV. Therefore, if you want to use a word in any particular sense, you would have to define it in one of the supplemented uh, vocabularies. So, if you want to use that sense of agent as a person who acts on behalf of someone else, then you would put that as a second uh, as, as a different sense of the word agent. You could put it in here. Or you might put it in your community vocabulary. But actually, that sense of agent is actually so common that I would want to see it in the, the general supplemental vocabulary. People use that. You know. He's a Russian agent. Okay. <laughs> that sort of thing. Sure. sure you're right. You're right. Uh, there, there will be multiple senses. Okay. okay. Back to the slides. Uh, yeah, we're almost finished. Uh, next slide. Is there another slide? Okay, we will be on 35 now, slide 30. Okay, and, and this is the final point I'd like to make, which I said once before, but uh, I'll, I'll repeat it. Um, I'm talking again, uh, 
having this vision of this being a way to achieve semantic interoperability by making it easy to people for people to use sophisticated ontologies by creating uh, accurate translations from basic English language into the ontological specification. That's going to take a lot of work. It's not going to happen within a few months. Okay, uh, but. Do we nevertheless have any motivation for trying to use the controlled vocabulary, uh, even though this project is years down the line from, from visualizing completion? The answer is yes. I think the answer is yes. And, and it's because it's going to take a while for communities to actually ultimately define their terms, recursively define their terms with respect to the basic vocabulary. That can be done immediately. That doesn't have to wait until there's a translation from the basic English into logical specification. And even if there never was a, a translation of basic English into logical specification, I think this is a really good idea to have domain knowledge described ultimately recursively using terms that we all understand. I think this is the best, just, just, just from the linguistic point of view, it's probably the best way you can you can get to to try to provide knowledge to people uh, in terms they can understand. Now, uh, this won't supplant Wikipedia. It's not the point. Uh, we're just we're just doing definitions here. We're not doing uh, encyclopedic descriptions of topics. Uh, but just from the point of view of basic concepts. I think it would be a good idea to try to describe them in the simplest possible language. And I think this is a method to try to use the simplest possible language for describing our concepts, building up the defined terms as time goes by. It's going to take a while to do that. And while that's underway, the, um, the project of coming to agreement on a common ontology, which we're trying to do within the Cosmo project of the ONTAC working group, and trying to find some way to, to build a linguistic uh, translation mechanism between the, defined, the English-defined vocabulary and the conceptual-defining vocabulary. Uh, those will take a while, too, but while but both of these can proceed in parallel, and then when, uh, when time comes, when, if and when there is a translation mechanism from English to, um, to logic, there will be a large body of definitions created using the defining vocabulary with which we can try to refine the, um, the English to logic translation mechanisms. So just trying to use basic English for defining your terms recursively using several layers of vocabularies, I think it's a good idea. Uh, and I think it's worth doing all by itself, even if nothing else happens. And uh, meanwhile, we'll be trying to, I'll be trying to find some way to push the, the project of translating really basic English into really basic ontology, and uh, perhaps the two will intersect. And if, if it does, then we should have a, uh, a mechanism for... Well, Pat, let me introduce that. Go ahead. This is Roy. Uh, let me introduce something that uh, you, you uh, might be able to apply this elsewhere in a broader sense. Use this same little... Uh, Capability basically offer it up and let people use it to uh, 
uh, read web pages in terms of which terms are understandable <laughs> from this basic ontology, basic defining ontology or list, and, and which are not. Not so basically an mm-hmm. author apply it to uh, a Word document he's writing or a PowerPoint presentation he's putting together or a, a web publisher, somebody writing a document for the web could essentially... Yeah, uh, uh, yeah I think they're... I don't understand. Here's all these words. What do they mean? Right. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. There, there are, I think, the Win, Windows, WinWord um, uses an understandability criterion or perhaps that's, that's a project that's a natural language group uh, in which they, they look at both the, the vocabulary and the grammar and try to decide whether uh, a, uh, a particular text is too complex to be understood. There are people that create such measures. And now I'm not sure if this would, would add anything to that type of application. But, um, yeah, yeah, I just um, perhaps emphasizing defining vocabulary might help to make such measures, uh, refined measures of that type. Okay. We have there you go. Thank you. Yeah, 15 minutes left. Okay. So if you finish the yeah, uh, so the, so the next slide should say the end or something like that. Uh, ah, yeah. Slide 36. That is the end. Okay. So uh, at this point, um, any questions? Yes. Uh, before Come we in. start questions, I mean, uh, I, I think it's it's a great presentation. The uh, methodology and the tool that you have offered up have. I mean, such tremendous utility. I mean, the first thing I can think of is uh, in the Texothosaurus project that oh, yes. Bob is starting. Maybe uh, you two can talk to one another. I mean, I can definitely yeah. see yeah. a utility whereby I mean you can constantly check if uh, we are creating terms that uh, are properly defined or not yet properly. Right, yeah. I, I have to apologize. I, I, I did say that this is relevant to ontologizing the ontologue, didn't I? Uh, <laughs> I, I? That's precisely what I had in mind, yes. The the the, um, the, the definitions that we use. Okay. I, I should have said, and what I, what I intended to say was that uh, the ontologue community, if they choose to do so, can serve as, as the uh, the alpha testers, the guinea pigs, the uh, the, the forward-looking bleeding edge uh, group that attempts to actually apply the notion of a basic defining vocabulary to try to define uh, complex domain-specific terms. Uh, I'm sure that if, if this community decides that it's worthwhile using the defining vocabulary in order to try to create uh, comprehensible, easily comprehensible specifications for the terms they're using, that you will find it's rough going, as I said, the very rough slogging in, in the initial phase because there'll be a lot of terms you want to put in definitions that aren't in the controlled vocabulary. But this would be a, a great community to test this, this whole notion if, if the community decides. And I think I think it's, I'd like to see it done, um, tested somewhere. Uh, I think it will be useful ultimately for ontologizing the ontologue. And if anybody else um, is the least bit interested, I'll, you know, be, I'm, I'm available to interact in any way to try to get such a project on, off the ground. Any comments from Bob? Bob may be on mute. But I mean, this reminds me of, of the early days when we tried to define UBL, the universal business language, yeah. from the EBXML core component core components and we, we went into exactly the same, same situation. I mean, 
there weren't enough defined so that we would continue to define a vocabulary and subject that to being a candidate for core components. And as time went on, and uh, the the UNC fact starting like the the harmonization uh, working groups, everything starts to fall together. Uh, one question, I mean that that sort of strikes me is, isn't that already what Adam Peace, for example, has been doing with Sumo? Uh, map having that all mapped into WordNet and his work in Kelt. Do you? I mean, I, I see a sort of total parallel in in your your proposed process and what uh, Sumo has done. I mean, how do you? There, there's some difference in overlap. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but 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 no. The, the um, as I say, the, the major difference is that here um, we have the notion of trying to make the whole process of converting language to logic easier by focusing on the really fundamental vocabulary. That is not actually, uh, it's not part of Adam's project. Yeah, he uh, did it and the other way around. He had the logic and then he sort of pre presented right. a, he, he, a, a natural language version of that log the logic. Right. He, 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 uh, you can, you can uh, implement a, an option in his Sigma key system, in which in, instead of looking at an axiom uh, in KIF, uh, you could look at an English language uh, sentence that expresses pretty much the same thing. But these are fairly formalized. Um, going in that direction is relatively easy because you get to choose the words you want to, uh, to express particular concepts. Going the other direction where you have to disambiguate and you may have synonyms also. It can be trickier, um, and uh, I, I don't think Adam has attempted that. It's actually fairly complex. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not faulting him for that. It's a very complex task. It's a, it's a language understanding task, not an ontology task. So, so I don't. I, I, no, I, I'm pretty sure that uh, there's not enough overlap to really. I mean, there may be things that we can use from Sumo. Sure, there'll be things that we can use from Sumo, and and I, and I I hope to be able to use the mappings of Sumo to WordNet to create mappings of the uh, the Cosmo, the, the basic upper ontology to WordNet also, and and of the uh, linguistic defining vocabulary to WordNet, and those mappings should help. So so yeah, there there, there are certainly things that are very useful, but there's components of this suggested project which just do not exist in Adam's project. And as far as I know, anywhere else. The closest, I would say, is psych. And they're really attempting human-level understanding. But um, they're not really focusing on this aspect of it. And, and um, so... Uh, I haven't heard any skeptics. We're all skeptics. There's got to be people here who, who just are thinking right now, eh, it can't possibly work. So, um, so this, oh, this is Roy again. I'm doing exactly what you're describing, and this is, I'm, I'm right in line with what you're saying. So I support it. <laughs> okay. So, so if, if this is Jack Park, if, if I could have some comments, not 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 that I'm being skeptical, just just trying to understand. Um, you talk in slide 25 about correctness. Who gets to decide what's correct? Uh, let's see. We're, let's go back to slide 25. Um, 
I don't know exactly. I, I'm pretty sure I know what you're talking about. Most of the maturity of this. Okay. Correct mapping. Well, as I said, the um, the as I described it, uh, what we'd probably have is an ontologist. You know, you have a say a, a domain expert that says, "Here's a term. This is what it means." And at, the domain expert who speaks English talks to an ontologist who speaks fluent English, and the ontologist also speaks computerish and translates what the domain expert says from his English into a um, computer specification. Now, this is interactive. The ontologist talks with the um, with the, the domain expert. Yeah, I understand the process. And 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 so and so and so. Uh, but then, but then the question uh, we want to know is how does the automatic translation work? We also want the uh, domain expert before they talk to the ontologist, so that they're not contaminated with ontology. Before they talk to the ontologist, to simply write down in using the basic vocabulary how they would describe this concept and see how that translates into um, into the uh, logical specification. Uh, the gold standard of correctness is what the ontologist writes. Um, and the question that you want to ask is, uh, for, for your natural language translation machine, is um, does it properly take what a domain expert writes in English and translate it in, into something very close to it. No, that's, that's, that's a different correctness than I'm asking about. Okay, so I was afraid of it. Uh, you're saying, what, 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 if, what if ontologists differ? Okay. There's, um, what if domain experts differ? Let's, go, let's get outside of the ontology. And Give me an example. The okay, okay. The, only, the only way to answer this question is to, is to use an example because there are lots of possible differences and scenarios. Go ahead. And give me an example you have in mind. Okay, um, you you uh, you get a diagnosis of a particular illness. You've appealed to a particular ontology of a domain expert. You go to a second doctor and you get a completely different diagnosis. Which which one do you choose? And does your system allow me to have those choices? That, that that's not a knowledge representation issue. Um, you're 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 talking about uh, is is the is the ontology in one expert conform closer to the real world than the ontology and other expert? This is an experimental question. This is a science, uh, an experimental science question. Well, yeah. I'm not challenging the, 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 the ideas you express on, on, on mapping at all. What I, am, what I am, and in fact, I'm not challenging anything. What I'm trying to figure out is where, in fact, is this thing to be useful to, to, useful to users if, in fact, it's giving answers that don't fit their situation, well, even if they were correct. Okay, what, what, what the, the um, knowledge representation does, it allows you to talk precisely from one person to another so that uh, one domain expert will say that this is what I mean. Another domain expert will say this is what I mean. Now, if, if one domain expert and one on oncologist um, an ontologist, oncologist, uh, uh, <laughs> we gotta careful. Sa says, I think this is this kind of cancer. And another oncologist says, no, I think this is this kind of cancer. Uh, then they have to describe why they think that. Now, what the knowledge representation does, it allows them to describe using precisely the same uh, language. Uh, and if they describe what the reasons for their opinions using precisely the same language, you can find out why they differ. That's all the ontology can do for you. 
So it's, it's to allow people to describe their their um, their knowledge. So in, in, in fact, to understand what you're talking about now. This is this is what I was looking for, and I'm glad we're having this discussion. You're you're not really talking about literally correct domain ontologies, but a correct way to represent them. So what right. you're looking not, not, for... Not, not, not scientifically correct, but the, the, the question is, uh, is, is the mapping, what I'm asking here, is the mapping between this word... the language and, and the ontology, is the mapping between the language and the ontology correct? Now, the language, of course, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the language, uh, you, you can speak utter nonsense in any language, and you can, you can create a definition that's absolute utter nonsense. And if it's not lo internally logically contradictory, it will probably have a logical specification. So, so somebody can create a term uh, which is nonsensical. And you can probably think of lots. And I'm sure you have friends who do that. Uh, and, and what I'm saying is you can probably create a logical specification of that. Now, both of these things will be utter nonsense and, and, and meaningless stuff. But, but the mapping between the English and the and logic it could be correct. That's what I mean by correct here. Now, 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 now we're in vigorous agreement. Okay. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, I, I just, I was trying to, trying to disambiguate which right. version because, in fact, your, your, your concept of raspberry happens to have two definitions, not just the one you posted. And so we could we could disagree about definition. Oh yeah, well, well, of course you can give somebody the raspberry too. <laughs> exactly. So 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 you we're not talking about correctness of that which is represented, but correctness of the means by which. It yeah, is. yeah, that's right. I, 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 I'm sorry if I gave that wrong. I, well, what I wrote here in the slide, I said a correct mapping, and and, and uh, I, I didn't I didn't mean a, a correct with respect to the real world. <laughs> okay. So we're we're really on the same page. Okay, great, wonderful. Okay, thank you. This is a great talk. Anyone else? Other questions? Two minutes. If, okay. If not, uh, on behalf of the community, uh, may I thank uh, Dr. Patrick Cassidy again, and we look forward to your joining us, even if remotely, uh, at the July 23rd face-to-face uh, -face workshop, uh, where we will be again, pursuing similar issues uh, in a different setting. Okay, thank, thank you. you. I have another meeting to go to, so I must leave now. Okay. All right. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Thank, thank you for listening. Bye.